Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. As we continue to study the book of Daniel, we will complete the study of chapter 4 today. Today's lesson is titled, Considering the Stump, taken from Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 to 37. In this chapter, we are seeing God's leadership in bringing humility into this king. And these last verses are proof that God was dealing with Nebuchadnezzar in a really big way. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. The class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Over 100 people are attending this class weekly. We enter the classroom at 9 o'clock and have a short time to visit and enjoy coffee and donuts. And we welcome you to come and visit with us if you're in the area. Well, Doug has gone to the podium, ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We're going to finish our second, our last part of chapter four today, and uh, we'll come to grips with how Nebuchadnezzar's stories ends, and we'll see what God has been doing, is going to do in his life. Now, since we're in Daniel, and this is the end of chapter 4, if you have your Bibles with you today, I want you to open them to Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter, now you can keep a marker there in chapter 4, we're coming back, but Proverbs chapter 29, we're going to look at verse 23. But before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for how you have blessed this class. Help us to always remember that the Believer's Bible class is your class and it doesn't belong to any particular person or group. Help us also, Father, to to be of the kind that can reach out and bring others to us that want to be involved in a serious Bible study. To that end, Father, I pray that you will help me to be faithful in studying and help me to spend the time I need. And sometimes when it seems like it's late, give me renewed energy to be able to keep studying and to finding the things that you want me to be able to teach. May I be able to share the things that you demonstrate to me in my life in a way that is transferable to others. Now, Father, we thank you that we have a nation where we are free to meet and to open the word and to study it. Now, I know, Father, over the last year, there have been people in our country who have tried to prevent that. Father, I pray that you protect our Supreme Court and that you work in the hearts of those justices there and that we will be allowed to continue with freedom of worship, freedom of study, freedom of sharing our faith and exercising our religion uh, and our relationship as the Constitution provides. Now, Father, 
You know, our country is in desperately desperate need of your help right now. I pray that we're not going through a punishment phrase, but that you will bring us, our nation, to a time of repentance. And that we will come to see and understand that this country belongs to you. Now, I know Satan appears to have taken it away. And Satan seems to be involved in evil every single place you look in our nation. Father, help us to be men and women of courage and to be willing to stand for what is right and what is the gift that you have given us and not allow them to destroy it. Help us to understand their subterfuge and their cunning and to be able to deal with it the same way that Joshua was able to deal with I. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, speaking of the current leaders of our nation, I think it's probable to look at something they have akin with Nebuchadnezzar. And that's found in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23. I have to admit it's not on the PowerPoint. You won't be able to see it on the screen because God just showed me this this morning. But look at this passage. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. A man's pride will bring him low. We are going to see this proverb of Solomon demonstrated thoroughly and completely here in the story of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. But before we get there, I just want to review a few things that, that we've studied in the past that I think are preparatory for what we're going to talk about today. Nebuchadnezzar has paid lip service in the past to the Most High God. In chapters 2, he paid lip service to Daniel's God as he explained the dream to him when no one else could and told him, in fact, what the dream was. In chapter 3, he paid lip service to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's God. It didn't bring about a change in him. He still thinks too highly of himself and his gods. And maybe he doesn't make a great distinction between those two. So God now gave him a vision which describes exactly how he intends to humble the great king. I want you to see that just a second. Think about that. God told Nebuchadnezzar exactly what he was going to do to him before he ever did it. Wouldn't you think that would have an effect on a man? Yeah, you would think so. And it may have had some kind of effect. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Once again, Daniel was called in as the only hope of the dream interpretation and to give Nebuchadnezzar a chance to evade what was going to happen to him, to turn to God, substitute righteousness for sin. Now, there's something else that you need to see. Because I'm going to make a suggestion to you. I can't support from the scriptures, but I think it's reasonable. Why is it that during the seven years that Nebuchadnezzar is gone, that the empire stays together, and when he comes back, it's turned immediately back over to him? I think Daniel was in charge a great deal of running that empire. And other people there were willing to follow him. Why? Why were they willing to follow him? Well, when a godly believer 
is operating in the area of his or her giftedness, people watch and listen. They watch and listen. And subconsciously, they ask themselves these questions. Does this person know what to do? You know, with the king as an animal, what do you do? Does this person know what to do? Do I want to be able to do what he is doing? Can he help me learn what to do? And can I trust him? And they saw those things in Daniel and they answered yes. And I think they were willing to follow him. You see, God's people should shine in a situation of crisis. Let me tell you what people should see in our lives in a situation of crisis, just like they saw in Daniel's life, in Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah's life. There's three things that I want you to see. Number one, they're going to see peace and not panic. Peace and not panic. Do you remember the difference between Jesus and the disciples when they were on the boat on the Sea of Galilee and the storm came up? Jesus was at peace. They were in panic. Number two, they see faith and not fear. Do you remember the second time on the Sea of Galilee? This time Jesus wasn't in the boat. He was walking on the water. What did Peter said, let me walk to you. Jesus said, come on. He almost got there, and then he took his eyes off Jesus. And what was Jesus' response? Oh, man of little faith, what made you doubt my word? You see, they had no faith. Jesus had all the faith. But he's demonstrating a man of God, a woman of God, will have faith, not fear. And finally, a third important component, and that is, a man or a woman of God will have commitment and will not compromise. Be committed to their promises they made to God. You see, if you've given your life to God, you've made a commitment. But the problem is we tend to want to take it back. He says, it's mine. You gave it to me. You told me that your life was mine and I could make you the kind of man or woman you wanted me to be. And then you want to take it back? Commitment, as opposed to compromise. So, now we've witnessed the second dream that the Most High God has given to Nebuchadnezzar. And the meaning associated with this dream is not nearly as encouraging as the first dream. In fact, this dream is deeply, deeply disturbing and foreboding to anyone named Nebuchadnezzar. And God has indicated that he's going to turn the king into an animal. We need to understand this statement is not metaphorical. This statement is actual in nature. And he's going to remain an animal for at least seven years. At least. Now, why do I say at least seven years? Because the dream says seven years. Well, because if Nebuchadnezzar says no to God, he's going to remain an animal. But God, in his foreknowledge, knew the decision that Nebuchadnezzar could make. Now, there may be some disagreement about this, but I hold very strongly to this belief that God gave man freedom of choice, free will. But God also told man, you are responsible for the decisions you make. Now, God knew, he foreknew the decision Nebuchadnezzar would make, and that's why he went after him the way he did. He also foreknew the decision Belteshazzar would make, and that's why he didn't, as we'll see in chapter 5. God knows. 
And so let's start in Daniel uh, chapter 4, verse 28, and we're going to look at the end of this story. So all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his palace in Babylon. Now, it seems to me I need to, to stop there for just a second. The dream came. The, the wise men couldn't interpret it. Daniel came in and he did. And he told the king the awful news. He advised him what to do. And Nebuchadnezzar went to sleep that night. And when he woke up in the morning, what happened? Nothing. He went to sleep that night and woke up the next morning after that. And what happened? Nothing. And that whole week, nothing happened. The whole month, nothing happened. For six months, nothing happened. What do you think people started to think? Nothing's going to happen. God's forgotten. Or God's not really going to do it. Or Daniel's interpretation is wrong. You know, 11 months and 29 days... Nothing happened, but one year later, something did. Something did happen. Why did God wait so long? Could it be that he was trying to take the king by surprise? No, this is God's nature. Look in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, what it says, and they refused to listen. This is Israel. And, and they did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness for you did not forsake them. Then I found this verse in Nobler's favorite book in the Bible. It's Nahum, uh, Nahum 1.3 Don, you probably know this verse well, but I'm not going to ask you to quote it. I'm going to read it. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It's interesting. I have a wife that prays for that all the time for our nation. And wouldn't it change things if God started punishing evil? Yes, we need that. Now, the text doesn't tell us what happened next or what went on for a year, but it appears to me that this dream, after a while, had little effect on Nebuchadnezzar. And I think he blew it off. And when we rejoin the events taking place in Babylon, we find Nebuchadnezzar walking on the roof in Babylon, admiring his city. Walking on the roof. Now, when I heard that, I thought about that. Ching... Is it a wise thing for a king to always be walking on the roof? No, we learned something about David about that, you know. Seems like whenever it happens, something always happens bad. Now, he's walking on his roof. He's admiring his city. And what does he say? Is this not Babylon the Great? Now, wait a second. Who's the empire of Babylon the Great? Nebuchadnezzar which I myself have built as a royal residence. Now, is that true? Did he do that? Well, yeah, he did. He did build it. And oh, by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty, can you feel the drops of pride falling off those words? 
Is that not one of the most arrogant statements you've ever heard? Look what I have done. Look how great. Now, I think it's only fair that we step back and ask ourselves, what was Nebuchadnezzar seeing from the roof of his palace? What was he seeing? Was it really that great? Or is he, well, let me tell you. The city was originally built in a rectangular type shape. I think we have a map of that up there. Do we? No. Let me tell you, go back a second. I forgot. Herodotus was a great historian. And most of the information I'm going to give you now comes from Herodotus. He was born in 484 B.C. And he died in Italy in 425 B.C. He was Greek. But he wrote about Babylon. So this is only like 100 or 70 years after these events. So uh, this is uh, an excellent information that we get once that we discovered the writings of Herodotus and when it, when it dealt like with this. This city now was built originally in a rectangular shape. The length of its walls were about 15 miles on each side, which means there's 60 miles around the wall. The city was surrounded by a brick wall, which each brick had an inscription of Nebuchadnezzar in it, a brick wall that was 87 feet, not 87 feet tall, 87 feet thick. The wall itself was 350 feet high. Now, have you ever seen those siege engines where they have them on wheels and they're a tall tower and you roll them up to the walls and, and the, the door opens and the soldiers come rushing out at even levels with the top of the wall. You can't have a siege engine that's 350 feet high. It will topple unless you have a base that, that's, you know, like 200 feet. So it doesn't work. You can't come over the walls. Imagine carrying a ladder that's 350 feet high to try to climb over those walls. Doesn't work. Now, not only that, but uh, the top of the wall was wide enough so that six chariots could circumnavigate that wall together. Every so often, there was a tower on top of the wall. And along those walls, there were 250 towers. There was this vast ditch or moat that was built around the outside of the walls. And it was filled with water from the Euphrates River. Each of the gates through the walls had a drawbridge. And it was built into the wall to allow passage over the moat when you, were, when you were going in. Now, it's interesting. The drawbridge, when you bring it up, the outside of it was completely bronze. And they would keep it very polished. So you can imagine you're, you're two or three miles away and the sun is shining brightly, of course, on that Iraqi desert. And how do you think those bronze doors or gates appeared? They would just shine like, like mirrors. And it was an awesome looking sight. And they did that. Now, you look at the inside of that uh, wall, and there's a, another wall, a second wall, a little shorter, and extended around the entire city. Between those two walls, you could raise crops or pasture animals. Now, the city had 25 magnificent boulevards extending north and south, and also 25 extending east and west at right angles to the north-south boulevards. It would cut the city into uh, 676 little quadrants. Now, who would come up with an idea like that? Probably one of the greatest engineers the world had seen up to then. 
Now, there's some scholars now that say there was no hanging gardens. I don't buy that. Uh, the, the earlier historians say that, and he, uh, Nebuchadnezzar built that for his wife, and he, uh, he wanted to make it look like the, the, the land and the hill country and the gardens over in uh, the Iran area where she came from. And so this magnificent seven wonder of the world he made with all these pulleys and ways to, to water all these plants as he built an artificial mountain, so to speak, and covered it with gardens. And it was amazing what he had done there. Yes. A great design to give the governor Abbott for the border wall in Texas. It may be. It may be what we need. Now, the city walls were, of course, divided into two parts where the Euphrates River flowed through. So it not only filled the moat, it gave them a constant water source. And it, it, it flowed. They engineered wharves lining the river beyond which were walls which prevented, uh, the, if they don't want you coming in, you can't go in. And each, they had this central bridge that went through, uh, went across the Euphrates, but they also built a subterranean tunnel under the Euphrates where they could go back and forth if they needed to under the river. You know, that's quite a feat of engineering to be able to do that. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was big on horses. Uh, now, excluding Herodotus wrote it this way, excluding his war horses, he had 800 stallions that he kept on line. He had 16,000 mares, each stallion which serves 20 mares a year. Now, if you look at big houses today, what do you measure them in? Square feet. Nebuchadnezzar didn't measure his palace in square feet. He measured it in acres. It was 50 acres, his palace. Is that rather amazing edifice? I wouldn't want to be responsible for cleaning it. But this city had 50 full temples, various other shrines and important buildings. There was gold everywhere. Was it magnificent looking? Yes, it was. But let's go back and see what happened. Let's read these passages together. Starting again in verse 28. And all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said... Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence, the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were, word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and he began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. What was happening... When God executed his judgment, the prime statement of pride. Do you see that? What is it about Nebuchadnezzar that God couldn't stand? Pride. When he lists those sins in Proverbs, that he, a list of seven, what tops the list? Pride. 
What was the first sin ever committed? Who committed it? Satan. Right, I'll be like the Most High. What did he do? The same thing with Adam and Eve. Hey, you eat this, you can be like God. God's not telling you this because he doesn't want you to know this, but you eat this, you can be like God. Don't you want to be like a God? And that's what he's doing. Now, let's go on. The seven periods here, I believe, speaking of years. And the seven periods of time, many times were used this way. And it really uses the word times, seven times. And times is used many times in the scriptures to refer to years. If you look in Revelation, it uses a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. Now, can we know that that's years? Yes, because in other place, instead of using time, times, half a times, it uses 42 months. And in another place, it uses 1,290 days, all of which equal three and a half years. Gary? Also, the seven is a common uh, uh, term, I guess you'd say, for God's people in Israel. It was the seventh day, the seventh year, 49 years. So seven is often a sign that God is involved with his people. So this is what he's doing. And in fact, if you read some of the really the best scholars that used to be with Dallas Theological, it passed on now. But they say, if you look at this verse we just read about how it, the hair grew into like feathers and, and the nails like bird's claws, to, time to do that would take more than seven months. It would be seven years, that kind of a period. And so, it does. Uh, in many people's thinking. And we'll have to see. Seven will have a different meaning when we get to the last part of Daniel chapter 9. But let's look on in verse 34 then. But at the end of that period, that seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. Now what would happen, what would have happened if he hadn't raised his eyes towards heaven? He remained an animal until he died. That was his chance. Fortunately for him and for us, he did. And his reason returned to him. Now, the word, the verb situation here is not that he caused his reason to return to him. His reason was given back to him. And who? By God. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. Now notice his statement here. Who runs things here? God does. Question. Question that somebody else does want to ask. So did he repent as an animal in verse After his... Reason returned to him. But as an animal, he turned his head, his eyes to God. He recognized what was going on. You know, it's interesting. Everywhere you see an animal in the scriptures, do they have any concern about obeying God? No. Whether it's the donkey speaking to Balaam or the fish, the swallower, they, they obey God immediately. So I think you see, in this situation, in his depraved state, he made a decision to look to heaven. 
Now, there's some people who would say, oh, no, you can't do that in a depraved state. Yes, you can. Nebuchadnezzar did. What I'm saying? Some of you know who tends to say that. But we will go on. Yep. I, I suspect that, that those words that God spoke <clears throat> at, at, right before he went to roll through his mind Probably so. Probably so. And maybe Daniel's words in verse 27. And so, and so notice, he says, and all the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. Now notice, he didn't re restore them. They were restored to him, passive to the subject. And for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so that I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now, notice again, what is he saying? Surpassing greatness was added to me. Was Nebuchadnezzar after this greater than he was before? But who gave him that greatness? He recognizes it. You see that? It was added to me. I didn't, he didn't take it. He didn't create it. Someone gave it to him. Yes, sir. That's the same thing that happened to Job after everything that he went through. Doubled him. He doubled everything except his children. The children who died, sons and daughters, you know, everything else, if there was 1,400 of uh, this animal that died, Afterwards, God gave him 2,800. All he did was give him the same number of children. Why? Why didn't he give him double? Because he already had those seven still in heaven now. So it was doubled. Exactly. All right. So I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able, Nebuchadnezzar said. Will that ever happen in our nation? I know somebody who prays for it all the time, and it's not me. But her prayers like that are answered so often, and I can't wait to see what's going to happen. But the fact is, what did Nebuchadnezzar learn here? God's reality. I'm going to tell you, I think there's four things that, he need, that he's come to see now. He's come to be convinced of. God really exists. This is not a fake God. This is a real God. Number three is that God is involved in the affairs of mankind and they will do what he says. What he, nobody can stay his hand. Number four, he has learned that if a man turns to God, God will save him. I believe Nebuchadnezzar say, what's the first thing he learned? He wasn't God. You know, it's interesting. Some people, oh, I can remember my grandfather, who was a lawyer. He used to ask me, he'd, many times he'd be angry when he was asking me because he had just come back from the courthouse uh, up in Cedar Rapids and Des Moines. And he would say, do you know the difference between God and a federal court judge, Douglas? And I'd say, no, grandfather, I don't. He said, God doesn't believe he's a federal court judge. 
And uh, some of you will get that in just a second, but it's unfortunate. But there are men and women today who basically think they're God. We may have one in the White House. Uh, they're going to want to put four more of those kind of people on our Supreme Court. But the fact is, Nebuchadnezzar, it's clear, becomes a man of God here. And it's going to be even clearer when we go back now and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. You remember that we skipped before. Nebuchadnezzar makes this proclamation in writing and sends it out. And Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in the earth. May your peace abound. Now, I want to stop there just a second. May your peace abound. That's not a greeting that comes from Babylonians. That's not a greeting that comes from Persians. That's not a greeting that comes from Greeks or Romans. Who makes that kind of a greeting? Jews. Shalom. The peace of God. The peace of Jerusalem. This is, this is a Hebrew greeting. How did he get that? Daniel. Do you see? Daniel. God, immeasurable influence through that man. So, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now, whose God is the Most High God now? Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's. It always was Daniel's. But Nebuchadnezzar's. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, I want you to notice, who does this announcement or proclamation go to? It goes to the entire world, as far as Nebuchadnezzar understood. And as I said, one of the things I've learned as a lawyer, especially when dealing with contracts, it's easy to review a contract and see what's there and say, that shouldn't be there. That doesn't protect my client or that can hurt my client. That, I don't want to take that out. But it's much more difficult to see what's not there and needs to be added. And as I started reading this at first, I didn't realize what was really going on here. And I want you to see an important contrast of what God has done in this, and it's, it's really magnificent. You see, he recognized who God was and his position in the universe. He recognized that the, what the Most High God had done for him. As a result, Nebuchadnezzar had become a different man. He no longer laid claim to, to sovereignty and majesty. He knew whose attributes those really belonged to. He really came to see his own greatness as God-given. God gave him this greatness. He sought to honor God rather than himself as a source of everything good that he had or experienced. He learned to express gratitude. The believer has a thankful heart. One who's close to God has a thankful heart. And he also expressed humility regarding his own importance and power. But he also, in doing this, created a comparison between himself and God's people. What was the calling of the Jewish people? Well, you can find it in the great prophet Isaiah in his text. You start in verse 42, 6. He says, I am Yahweh. Obviously, God is speaking. I am Yahweh, and I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand, and I will watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant 
to the people. Now, look at that last that statement right there. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. Now, who's he talking to first? Israel. Then who's the people? The rest of humanity. I'm appointing you as a covenant. What is your job under this covenant? As a light to the nations. You are to be a light to the nations. You are to take salvation to them. Now you can say, well, no, wait a second, Doug. It does say light to the nations, but it doesn't say take salvation to them. How do you, can you really say that? Well, turn three, cha three chapters over to Isaiah 49, 6. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved one of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Did God's chosen people do that? In fact, they turned to the darkness of paganism and God had to bring Nebuchadnezzar over to discipline them. But at the same time, he took a pagan king and sent God's message of salvation throughout the world through him. How awesome is that? Does God not have all kinds of reasons for what he does? And we never even know what's going to happen until we see it. God's people failed, but God's plan will never fail. And you begin to see what is going on, how neat it is. Well, let's look at a few applications for our consideration here. I want you to see this because it's important. God's grace always precedes his judgment. You know, some people could say, look at what he did in Nebuchadnezzar. That wasn't very fair. Oh, no. In chapter 1, he sees these guys who belong to the Most High God who outstrip everybody in his nation as far as their wisdom and ability to counsel him. In chapter 2, they see not only can he interpret the dream, he can tell them the dream. And that can only come from God. When are you going to do something about this information you've been given, Nebuchadnezzar? Well, I'm not ready to. All right. You throw those three guys in the fiery furnace, I'm going to be in there with them. And when they come out, they'll be completely unscathed because they wouldn't bow down to your image. Now are you ready to turn to me? Nah, I don't think so. Now, that's pretty impressive, but not, not quite yet. All right. I'm going to give you another dream. And in this dream, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to you and how I'm going to turn you into an animal and tell you turn your eyes to me. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I don't know if that's really going to happen or not. It didn't happen the next day. Finally, it does happen. A year went by. Why did God wait so long? Grace is the reason. Give Nebuchadnezzar a chance. And he didn't take it. Didn't take it. And don't you think pride was at the bottom of this issue? Yeah. It put blinders over his eyes, Ed. And he couldn't see because of the pride. He, he just couldn't see it. But now, is this only true in Nebuchadnezzar's life? No. You look throughout the scriptures and you see it. What about Jonah? He goes over there. He says, you've got 30 days. God's going to destroy you because of how wicked you are. This time, did the people see the light? And they repented and turned to God. And he didn't destroy them. But then you go back a little farther. And what about Noah? God gave the people in his day 120 years to hear the message. Some will say, it doesn't say in Genesis. 
that Noah was preaching to them what to do, telling them, proclaiming God. But it does later. In Peter, he says, Noah, a preacher of righteousness. He was there proclaiming to those people what God had said. How many of those people said, you know, he's right. We want to join with him, finish this boat, and we want to be able to be in there when the time comes. How many? Zero. Only his family. The rest were gone. What about, about when Isaiah and Jeremiah were telling Israel about their destruction? They had years and years and years to turn. They refused. And it may be one of the most interesting ones. When God set John the Baptist to the earth to prepare the way for his son to come, what gospel did he preach? The gospel of the kingdom. Meaning, if you accept the Messiah, the kingdom will come. When Jesus came, what gospel did he preach? The gospel of the kingdom. I'm the Messiah. You accept me, the kingdom will be here. We'll set up the kingdom. Now, he's saying that. Does he know that it's going to happen? No, he knows it's not going to happen. Why? Because he knows they're going to reject him. The offer is there. It was the promise. But they rejected him. How long did they have? Well, at least 23 years between John the Baptist, period of grace. And then he gave from 33 AD until 70 AD a chance for them to receive the Messiah and become a part of the church. And they said no in 70 AD. The penalty came and it was horrible. There's a second thing I want you to see because I believe Nebuchadnezzar did believe himself to be a God before. When a man seeks to lift himself up to the level of God, what he really does is reduce himself to the level of an animal. And you start thinking, Adolf Hitler, he did that. Joseph Stalin, he did that. Mao Zedong, Joseph Smith, Kim Jong-un. You know, they, they worship Kim Jong-un over in uh, North Korea. And he's an animal. You know, we have a president who tells us, you know, I have a good relationship with him. Doesn't matter, he's an animal. Now some of you say, wait a second, you're including Joseph Smith in this level? Joseph Smith believed that he could write scripture. Who was the only one who could write scripture? God, not Joseph Smith. And if you saw, if you really studied what was going on and all the wives and all the stuff, animal. Now, Something else we see from Nebuchadnezzar's life before we leave. And there's three more things I want to show you before we're finished. There is no security to a man or woman in power, wealth, position, acclaim, or any other form of human success. There is only security through a personal relationship with the Lord God. Only there can a man find security and accomplishment. Any other accomplishment is going to be burn up. You know, I can remember when I got to go argue before the Supreme Court of the state of Texas and dealing with, you know, it's pretty intimidating as those nine justices are up there and you get about two minutes into what you intended to say before the questions start firing at you and you've got to be able to answer them and you're going back and forth. And then when the opinion came out and you see that they affirmed your case and that you won and you're excited and everything. And then I can remember shortly after that, God said, how long is that going to really last, Doug? Do you think 
uh, anybody will ever be talking about that in heaven? And I said, I, yeah, I see what you're saying, God. The only real accomplishment kind of thing is like when Dewey and I went to talk to his friend Bill and Bill decided to receive Jesus as his Savior. That will be remembered in heaven. That will be talked about again. That will be something that will always be there. Those are the kind of accomplishments that are important. Uh, not. Yes, ma'am. There is yes and no. The second thing I want you to think about before we finish, we still have to learn to substitute righteousness for sin in order to be able to defeat evil that wants to destroy our lives. I have had, you don't know how many people in this class have come up to me and said, that was so important for me to hear that it has such an effect on my life. And I'm not just talking about one or two because it is, and it's real. And he gives us weapons to be able to defeat sin. And if we don't use them, then it's on us. He said, I give you the means. Why won't you do it, Doug? And finally, last thing I want us to see before we finish with this chapter Many times we tend to view ourselves in what goes on in relation to God as spiritual victories or spiritual defeats. You know, I want a great spiritual victory today because this and this happened. Or, you know, well, yeah, that was a defeat, spiritual defeat. But, you know, in the war, there's always going to be some defeats. That's not the way God wants you to look at it at all. But he wants you to look at it as obedience or disobedience. Things went well because I obeyed God. And the power of obedience was able to accomplish that. Things didn't go well because I disobeyed. It may be that the disobedience didn't happen right then. It happened a little bit before, so it weakened me. God wants you to focus not on victory versus defeat. He wants you to focus on obedience versus disobedience because it's obedience that pleases him. It's obedience that is evidence of faith. It is obedience that is evidence of love, of knowing him and fearing him. And so that's what he expects from us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could come together and study this passage. I pray that you will be with us today I pray that you will help us to understand these principles from Nebuchadnezzar's life, how God hates pride. Help us not to be proud. I pray, Father, in addition to that, now as we go to celebrate the birth of our nation and the gift that you gave us in America, help us just to be thankful you allowed us to be born in America. I thank you even more that you allowed me to be born in America to Christian parents who raised me in a home of godliness. Some of us didn't get that, Father. But we got here as soon as we could. And I thank you for bringing us into a godly environment. Help us, Father, to realize how wonderful these gifts are that you've given to us, but that these gifts become so much even more wonderful when we're able to share them with someone else. Help us to do that. Help us to remain a nation that's willing to send out missionaries to the rest of the world. Give us the courage to stand up for spiritual rightness and what you have proclaimed to be the law of God. Help us, Father, 
not to be intimidated, not to back down, not to think someone else should do it, but not us. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.